Welcome to this verse-by-verse Bible teaching from Calvary Queen Creek in Arizona with Assistant Pastor Darrell Logan. We hope you're blessed by listening. Romans 10.17 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. For more information, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org. Father, we thank you once again for who you are and what you are to us. We thank you for your Holy Word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who indwells us, who um, believe in Jesus, who put our faith in Christ. Um, And and I pray, Lord, for anyone who's here who has not yet made that decision to put their trust in Jesus for salvation. I pray that the spiritual blinders will be lifted and that you would draw them to Jesus. Also pray for those who are saved, but maybe their fellowship isn't strong at this point for whatever reason. I, I just pray that you would draw them nearer to you as well. And if confession and repentance needs to take place, Lord, may you draw them to that place in a loving way, which is the only way you do things, for you are a God of love. You are, you are love, according to the scriptures. And so, Father, I pray for the people who are uh, joining us online as well. Thank you for them. And, and I just pray, Lord, that you would help to soften all of our hearts, Lord. Help us to be receptive to whatever it is um, you want to share with us through your word. And I pray for the gift of teaching and that I would decrease and you increase and be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So you can go ahead and open up to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 17. And we do have a title for the study. The title is You've Got a Job to Do. You've Got a Job to Do to do. And so, so far in the study, um, we've covered Genesis chapter one. So we covered uh, creation week. Um, We covered those six days. We believe those to be literal 24 hour days. um, And I explained why. And after that, um, I I just felt that it was a good time to um, cover that theory of evolution because many people, um, you know, would be wondering about that after a teaching about creation. And so we touched on that um, in the last study. And so tonight we're going to see what happens on day seven because only six days uh, of creation were covered um, in chapter one. And so many Bible scholars believe that um, at least the first three verses of Genesis chapter two should actually be a part of Genesis chapter one. Um, Now, just so you know that um, the chapter and verse divisions are not inspired, that came later on. And so um, as we get into the study, you'll see, um, you know, what they mean by that, how it kind of flows. And so um, not only are we going to look at day seven, but we're also going to look at the highlight of day six in greater detail. And so... uh, We're not going to see all of day six, but at least some of it. So it's going to go um, with with the completion technically of creation week as we look at day seven and then take a magnifying glass and and look at, and that's metaphorically, of course, and look at day six in greater detail. So that's a couple things we're going to do tonight. And so in verse one of Genesis chapter two, it says, thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. So in other words, the, uh, the universe um, was finished. God had completed his work. He completed not just uh, the universe that we would call uh, space, but also the earth's um, atmosphere, 
Um, if you read the scriptures, you'll find out that there's a reference to more than one heaven. And so you have our atmosphere, the earth's atmosphere would be the first heaven. Then you have space or the universe would be the second um, heaven. And then, of course, you have the third heaven, the dwelling place of God. And you see that in the scriptures in the New Testament. And so here God completed the universe. He completed uh, the earth. Not only that, but but everything that goes within the universe and the earth, um, everything was finished. And guess what? There are no new creatures that are being created. There's no new creatures that are evolving into another creature. It says that uh, all the hosts of them were, were finished. All the hosts of them were finished, which means that God is a finisher. The God we serve is a God who completes things. He does not leave things undone. Uh, For example, when you talk about the Bible itself, the scriptures, he made sure that he finished, so to speak, the compilation of scriptures that we have in what we call the Bible. The Bible, of course, is made up of 66 books. And so we see them here. And they, we see this unity here. It's, it's breathed out by God. It's God breathed. There is life in the word of God and God finished them. He preserved it on top of that. So we have it today. We can read and study it today. But we see that God, just like he finished the universe, just like he finished the earth, just like he finished all of creation, he brought a completion to the scriptures. So there are no new scriptures that, that somebody can call, oh, these are holy scriptures too, that should be added. No, the, the, that's done. The canon is complete. And we did a study on that in the past as well. But not only did he finish uh, the, the creation and finish the scriptures, for example, and, but he also will finish the work that he has begun in us. And this, by the way, is one of my favorite scriptures. And I'm talking about Philippians chapter 1 in the second half of verse 6. It says that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So in other words, um, at the moment of salvation, okay, I'm justified now. I'm, I'm declared righteous and so when he looks at me, it's, it's justified, never sinned. And so my standing with God is a, a righteous one. It is a right standing, which means that Jesus's righteousness has been imputed into my spiritual account so that when God the Father looks at me, he's looking at the righteousness of Christ. So that is my standing that as a true believer, you don't move from that standing. And so that work that he has begun in us at that time of justification, when we repent it and we put our trust in Jesus, it says that he's going to complete that work in us until the day of Christ. So either when you die or when the rapture takes place, he's going to complete that work. And so God is... A finisher, And he's been doing that for a long time, as we see in Genesis chapter 2, verse 1. In verse 2, it says, and on, or some translations say, say, or by the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day, and he sanctified it 
because he rested or ceased from all his work, which God had created and made. And so why did God rest? Was, was God tired? What, was God weary? No, he was not tired. God was not weary. That's not the reason he rested. In fact, Isaiah chapter 40, uh, verse 28 says, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God. We're talking about the eternal God here. The Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. And his understanding is unsearchable. So he did not rest on the seventh day in creation week because he was tired. Instead, he rested because his work was finished. He ceased, in other words, from his work of creation. And so this is the rest of a type of rest of satisfaction. He's satisfied with the work he has done. He's satisfied with the creation of the universe, the creation of the earth and everything in them. He is satisfied with this. So it is a rest of completion, a rest of satisfaction. But, but notice what he did with the seventh day here. It says that he set it apart as holy from the other days of the week. So that's what it means when it says that he sanctified it. In other words, he declared it holy. The seventh day is holy. Set it apart. And so this, of course, in the, in the future, at least from this point in the scripture, uh, will become the Sabbath day. And he would command the children of Israel to observe the Sabbath day. And so with that, uh, there is a reference I have you turn to. It's Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. So in Exodus chapter 20, verse 8, it says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. It says, Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. It's a day of rest. In it you shall do no work. You nor your son nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your strangers who is within your gate. So speaking to the children of Israel, he told them that everybody in the household, including the servants and even the animals, shall have this day of rest, this Sabbath day, on the seventh day of the week. Why? Because in verse 11 of Exodus chapter 20, for in six days the Lord uh, made the heavens and the earth the sea and all that is in them and rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and he hallowed it, which means once again, he sanctified it or he set it apart as holy. And so these children of Israel, they were commanded to have this day of rest. And Exodus 31 verse 17, for example, tells us uh, that them setting apart this Sabbath day and resting on this Sabbath day, that it was a sign that they were in a covenant relationship with God as God's chosen people or nations. However, the scriptures also tell us that the Sabbaths with an S, these days of rest, they were just a shadow of things to come. For example, when Colossians chapter 2 
verses 16 and 17. It says, so let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. And so don't let anybody judge you in any of these things or whether or not you're keeping uh, the Sabbath day, observing the Sabbath day. Because it says those were just a shadow of things to come, but the substance, or in other words, the reality is of Christ. Jesus is the reality. And so in order to have a shadow, there has to be a substance. So in order for there to be a shadow of a guitar, which I can see here, maybe you can't see it, but in order for that shadow of the, guitar, of the guitar to be there, there has to be the substance or the real thing here, a real guitar here. And so Jesus has come and the shadow was cast in the Old Testament. And these Sabbaths, for example, were, were just a picture of things to come. But in reality, the Sabbath, like I said, has been fulfilled in Jesus. So in other words, Jesus is our rest. And I'm talking about spiritually. He is our rest, which means, again, he's the fulfillment of the Sabbath. And so our rest is in Jesus. A very familiar scripture is Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, where Jesus is talking. And he gives this awesome invitation to people. He says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And that word labor, by the way, can also be translated as weary or tired. So, so all of you who are tired, all of you who are, you have this heavy load, come to me and you're going to find rest in me. And so maybe you've been trying to be religious all your life, trying to cross off a list, check off a list of do's and don'ts, trying to, uh, you know, stay away from certain foods in a religious manner because you think uh, that's going to make you more holy and make you more loved in the sight of God. Or, or maybe you're just tired from trying to do things on your own. Or maybe you're just tired from jumping from one religion to another or one cult from another uh, to another. Or, or maybe reading one book and, and just adding a, a whole stack of books to that one book because you're trying to find out the best way to live life. But none of these things are working and you're just getting a little weary. In fact, you are tired right now. You're tired emotionally. You're, you're tired mentally, that nothing is quite falling into place for you. And then you have this heavy load on you. You're being beat up by life. And so everything is just coming upon you. And that weight is heavy. It's way too heavy for you to bear. And the more heavy, the more things that are stacked upon you, the more weary you become in the life that you are attempting to live. But Jesus says, if you will come to me, then he will give you rest. If you will come to Jesus, then you will fulfill the Sabbath, that, that rest in him. And so we will rest from our works. We rest from our works when we put our trust in Jesus. In other words, we stop trying to do things on our own and we just rest in him. We rest in that finished work that he has completed on that cross when he died in our place. We rest in his finished work, those works that we don't have to do, but just trust in him. 
That, that is the, the, the work of God. That is what God, that's what God the Father desires, that we trust in his son, the only begotten, the monogenes. That's the Greek word. It means the only begotten or the unique son of God because he always was and will be the son of God. That's his position. That's his function in the Godhead. And so we, we rest from our works. We rest from trying to do everything on our own when we put our trust in Jesus and we keep the Sabbath in that way. And so uh, for Christians, every day is a Sabbath rest. That is a Sabbath rest in none other than Jesus Christ. But then ultimately, we will cease from our works on this earth. So right now, as believers, uh, we're called to serve We've been called to various ministries. And some people have been in uh, the ministry for a while, longer than others. And so there's going to come a time where you're going to rest from from everything. And this is that eternal rest when we spend eternity with God. And so that day is still coming. Now, I do want to say this, that although we're not obligated to, uh, to keep the Sabbath, as the Jews were, commanded. I will say this, that practically speaking, it it is a wise thing to take a day off and rest. It it is a wise thing to to be refreshed mentally and emotionally and physically, to to rest spiritually, to spend time in the word, to spend time speaking to the Lord in prayer. There's nothing wrong with that. And it is a wise thing to do. It is something that we encourage you to do. But as far as the obligation, of course, we've already shared that you're not obligated to do that. But practically speaking, feel free to do it. It is wise. In verse four in Genesis chapter two, this is the history or the story of the heavens and the earth when they were created. So speaking of the whole universe and the day or at the time that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens before any plant or shrub of the field was in the earth and before any herb, uh, speaking of vegetation of the field had grown for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth. And there was no man or person to till or to cultivate the ground, but a mist went up from the earth. Uh, some translations may say a spring came up for the, from the ground or a stream will rise from the earth. And, and that's how the um, earth will be watered. The whole face of the earth will be watered. And so what we see here, uh, once again, in chapter one, speaking of chapter one, just reviewing what we saw more of an overview, a summary of creation. So now, once again, we are taking a detailed look at day six now um, as we have started verse four. So that's what we're looking at in in, in chapter two. So it's not a contradiction where we're going to see of what happened in Genesis chapter one. But you see, once again, chapter one is an overview summary. That's chapter one. Chapter two, what we're about to see, it's more of a magnifying glass in a figurative way. It's a magnifying glass at day six. And it's going to mostly focus on the creation of the first man and woman. And so you're going to see a greater detail that's not uh, displayed in chapter one 
of Genesis. But some people will say that, oh, this is a contradiction. And and I didn't know uh, that people held that view until I was in college. I saw this uh, bookstore across the street from the college and I went in there and it said, and I went in there and I was a new believer, but I went in there because it said uh, Christian science on, on the, on the building. And so I was like, okay, Christian, I I walk in there and there's this one lady at the front desk and (laughs) she was kind of nice, but kind of, kind of strange at the same time. And so I walk past her, I start browsing the books and I'm I'm just looking in there. And so um, as I'm about to leave, um, she starts, you know, talking about, you know, all of this and trying to say that, you know, there's two different creation accounts and chapter one is one creation account and chapter two is another creation account. And so that's the first time I heard that. And I was early on in my walk with the Lord. And so needless to say, I I, I did my research, studied and so forth. And so it's not a, a different account. It's just that chapter one of Genesis is a summary of creation. It's a broad overview, whereas what you see in chapter two is more of a magnifying glass on day six. So it's looking at it in greater detail. So it's not a contradiction. But one thing I want to point out here as we look at uh, verses four and five in particular is the term the Lord God, the Lord God. So this is the first time in the Bible at this point, the first time in the book of Genesis. And so since Genesis is the first book of the Bible, I'm going to say this is the first time in the Bible that we see the Lord God used here. Because remember, it says um, in verse four, the Lord God made the heavens and earth. And, and then in verse five, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth and so forth. So why am I pointing that out? Well, I pointed it out because, like I said, it's the first time this is used. Uh, but also um, in Hebrew, you know, we would, you know, kind of think it would be pronounced Yahweh Elohim. And so we know that God in the Hebrew is Elohim, but now you have Lord here in all capital letters. And so whenever um, you see Lord in all capital letters, especially in the Old Testament, you look behind it, you see what is called the Tetragrammaton, which is the the four letters Y-H-W-H. And and many people believe that it's pronounced Yahweh. Uh, But in the original Hebrew, there were no vowels. So that's why I say many people believe because people are not totally sure. But we get the pronunciation of Yahweh because Adonai, which means Lord, um, has vowels in it, obviously. And so the vowels from Adonai, which means Lord, were placed within Y-H-W-H. And so um, many people believe that the correct pronunciation is Yahweh. And so you have the Lord God or Yahweh Elohim being used here for, for the first time. And so when we talk about Elohim, which we talked about in the first chapter of Genesis, uh, we're talking about um, God's majesty. We're talking about his power. And, and so it's not as personal. Elohim, uh, that name is not as personal as Yahweh. And so Yahweh is related to the verse to be. It's related to the, uh, not verse, but to the verb to be. Uh, for example, in, in Exodus, I believe it's in chapter three, when Moses asked um, God, 
um, who, do, who would he say um, sent him? If, if, they, if the people were to ask him God's name, because Moses was called upon by God to be the human uh, deliverer of the children of Israel out of slavery from Egypt. And so Moses is like, wait a minute, if they ask me who you are, what's your name, what, what should I say? And he said, I am that I am. And, and so that's why I say Yahweh is related to the verb to be. It, it means that he is the self-existent God. He, he just is all the time, the self-existent God. It also shows because um, notice that the Lord God is in use until man is about to be created. It also shows um, that, that God is involved with his creation. And so Yahweh is more of a personal name than Elohim. It's more personal. He's involved with this creation. It, it indicates or it shows that he is in a covenant with man. In other words, he is a covenant keeping God. He's Yahweh. So uh, that's the importance of seeing uh, Yahweh Elohim here or the Lord God here. And so based on these verses, as as we move on in verses five and six. Now, notice at this point in the narrative or in the story that vegetation had not grown yet. So nothing has grown yet. Why? Because man has not been created. No one tilled the ground and. Before the flood um, that happened, that's going to happen in chapter seven of Genesis, there was no rain on the earth. There was no rain on the earth. Um, in fact, at this time, there was this, this thick blanket of water vapor surrounding the earth's atmosphere. Because if you remember in Genesis chapter one, God created the expanse. He created the, the, the earth's atmosphere or the sky, so to speak. And it divided the waters from the waters. So the waters above are separated from the waters beneath. So the waters beneath would be the oceans and seas, for example. And then the waters above would be this water canopy. And so it'll create this effect on the earth where, where, where everything around the planet will be lush. So, so pretty much, you know, everything is looking tropical at this point. And so no rain has fallen upon the earth at this time. No one to till the ground at this time. So the vegetation had not grown. But how did God um, water the earth at this time? Well, the scripture tells us in, in verse 6 that a mist uh, went up from the earth. So that's how the ground was watered. And so in verse seven, it says, and the Lord and the Lord God. So Yahweh Elohim, he formed man of the dust of the ground and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. And so what you see here is actually a wordplay between ground and man. It's an interesting word play. So if you look at the Hebrew, if you look at ground or behind that word ground, um, the Hebrew word is Adama. And or it would look like Adama, but, it, but it's, I believe it's pronounced Adama if you look behind the word ground. But if you look behind the word man, it's Adam or Adam. And so you have this word play. And it's interesting because man was formed from the dust of the ground. But notice, even though he was formed from the dust of the ground, man did not automatically become 
a living being. Or some, or some uh, translations may say a living soul or a living person. In fact, man did not become a living being or person until God breathed the breath of life into his nostrils. And it's the same way spiritually. Every, every person, we're born spiritually dead until God, through the Holy Spirit, breathes spiritual life into us. In fact, take a look at John chapter 20. Let's see what John chapter 20 says. And we're going to look at verses 21 and 22. Now, this is after the resurrection. It says, Jesus said to them again, peace to you. As the father has sent me, I also sent you. And when he has said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And so now you have um, God, first of all, breathing literally into man in Genesis chapter two, and he became a living being. So you have that going on. And by the way, the, the, the Hebrew word for breath could also be translated spirit. And so that's interesting. So interesting in light of John chapter 20. Uh, verses 21 and 22. And so the man physically uh, became alive. He, he's alive now. Not just form, but a living being with that breath of life. And so once again, you can see that life can only come from life. Once again, that point alone gets rid of the, the theory of evolution. Because life has to come from life. And God is the only one who's the source of life. He's eternal God. And so he breathed this into men, into his nostrils. He began to live. And spiritually, we're, we're, we're dead. We're separated from God. So anytime you talk about death, you talk about a separation. And, and so um, what separation happens when a person physically, physically dies? Well, the soul leaves the body of that person. A separation takes place. And so um, spiritually speaking, People are spiritually dead, which means there's a separation that has happened. Man is separated from God spiritually. There's no relationship. There's no fellowship. And so we must be born again. And that's why Jesus shared that with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. We must be born again. We must be born from above. We must be born of the Spirit. And so you see here, after Jesus' resurrection, you see him breathe upon his disciples. And so now the Holy Spirit is not with them because, by the way, there's three relationships we can have with the Holy Spirit. We can have the Holy Spirit with us, which means he's trying to convict us and trying to draw us to Christ. He's not in us yet, but even before we believers, he's convicting us, drawing us to Christ. Hey, you need a savior. The savior is Jesus. He died on the cross for you. He's resurrected. He's at the right hand of the father. Come to him, all you who are uh, weary and you're heavy laden, and in him you'll find rest. The Holy Spirit is drawing you. That's he's with you. But then uh, when you repent, you put your trust in Jesus. 
he's, he comes in you. That is the second relationship we have with the spirit. And that is what we see here as Jesus, after his resurrection, breathes upon his disciples and the spirit begins to indwell them. And so here is their spiritual rebirth. This is them now being born from above because this is what's needed of all mankind. We need to be born again. And so that's why I say, you heard it before, we're not automatic children of God just because we've been born physically. No, we need to be born twice because it's that second birth, being born from above, being indwelt by the Spirit after receiving Jesus Christ into our lives, uh, receiving the Spirit. That gives us that second birth, birth. That places us into the family of God. And then we can call ourselves children of God. But since I mentioned that third relationship we can have with the Holy Spirit, although this is not a study on that, I I do want to mention the third relationship we can have with the Spirit, and that's the baptism with the Holy Spirit or the coming upon or some people say the overflow of, of the Holy Spirit. And so you have the Holy Spirit with trying to convict us, draw us to Christ. Then you have the Holy Spirit come in you. After you receive Jesus and he's molding us and shaping us into the image of Christ. And now we want the coming upon. We want the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And now we begin to affect the lives of others with the overflow of the Spirit. Now we can be effective witnesses to Jesus as we are overflowed with the Holy Spirit. Uh, Check out Acts chapter 1. And you'll see what Jesus is talking about. And so with the baptism is the Holy, of the whole, with the Holy Spirit, Jesus is the baptism, baptizer, and the Holy Spirit is the element. And so John the Baptist, for example, John the Baptist was the baptizer and water was the element. You see, but when we're baptized by Jesus, we're not baptized with water. We're baptized with the element of the Holy Spirit. And so we're being equipped to be effective witnesses for him. So those are the three relationships. Uh, but here today, I just wanted to share mostly that, that, that second relationship we can have with the Holy Spirit, the indwelling. And so we need that fresh breath of the Spirit to come within us so we can be spiritually alive. In verse 8 of Genesis 2, it says, the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, uh, the Lord God made every every tree to grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so this garden is planted eastward in Eden. And so, of course, That will be east of where Adam was created. And Eden, by the way, means pleasure. This is paradise, a literal garden that God created. He put Adam there, the first man he had formed. He put him in there. But then you notice here, verse 9, many people have wondered about this. Okay, I, I get the tree of life, many would say. But why the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, especially in light of what we're about to read? So why would God put this tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden? You see, God wanted to give man choice. He he didn't create robots. 
to people who are forced to love him. But no, man would have real choice. He would be able to choose to stay away from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They have all these other trees he can eat from, including the tree of life. But, but this one tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you'll see God told him to stay away from that. But yet still you have this choice there. They're still planted in the midst of this garden, in the midst of paradise. And so real love will be demonstrated of man would use his free will to stay away from which is forbidden. And it's the same way, for example, if, you know, I know some of you have pets. You have a dog, for example. You, know, and you can't really brag about the dog being obedient to you. If you chain the dog to a tree, go to the store, come back and then tell everybody, hey, look how obedient my dog is. He, he didn't, he didn't, you know, chew on the water holes. He, he didn't, you know, eat up all the food in the corner. He stayed put. And then somebody with common sense would say, well, that's because you chained him to the tree. That's not true obedience. But now if you let the dog loose and still had the food over there, the water holds out and the dog didn't chew the water holes, didn't eat all the food, but he wasn't chained to the tree. That's true obedience. That there was a true choice. And so God put that, gar- that, that tree there in the garden, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He would give us a choice. Therefore, if we were obedient, that would be true love. Jesus would even say in the New Testament, hey, if you love me, keep my commandments. So obedience to the Lord reflects our love for him. And so we see here that God was allowing man to use free will so that there will be real love displayed in this relationship. As we continue in Genesis 2, we are at verse 10. It says, now a river went out of Eden to water the garden. From there it parted and it became four river heads. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one which skirts the whole land of um, Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Uh, Bdellium, which is some type of aromatic resin or pearl, or uh, some would say a yellowish transparent gum resin. And then there was an onyx stone. Those were there. And then in verse 13, the name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one which goes or flowed around the whole land of Cush, and Cush is possibly a portion of northeast Africa. And then in verse 14, the name of the third river is um, Hidekel, or however you want to pronounce that, um, or Tigris. Um, It is the one which goes toward the east of Assyria, or Asher in in some translation. Um, And so it says this fourth river, by the way, is the Euphrates. And so uh, the Tigris rivers and the Euphrates Euphrates River, they actually exist today still in modern Iraq. However, we still don't know um, where this place is or where all these places are because of the flood. The flood distorted some things. And so the rivers may be flowing in different places and things like that. Um, Land masses have been shifted and so forth. So we're not sure where the Garden of Eden was located originally. All because of that. But, but we don't have to worry about that because there is a, 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 an eternal paradise that awaits those of us who put our trust in Jesus. Amen? 
Verse 15, then the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, in other words, took man and he put him in the garden of Eden to tend or cultivate and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying of every tree of the garden, you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So God gave the man a command. He gave Adam a command and he warned him of the consequence. Now, now some people may suggest that there's something harmful in the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Some people may suggest there's some type of poison in there. Maybe that's why uh, they would die. But remember back in Genesis chapter one, it says that when God saw everything, that it was very good. So that may not be the case that it was something poison within this tree. He created everything good, very good. It also doesn't mean that the knowledge of good and evil would be uh, passed on to the person who eats it in a magical way. But for sure, what will happen is that eating the forbidden fruit after God said no, it will give man a knowledge of evil by experience. How so? Well, because when God says not to do something and then you go ahead and do it anyway, that is evil. And so because this tree of the knowledge of good and evil was forbidden, and if man were to disobey and eat from it anyway, then that man by experience would know evil. And therefore, throughout the rest of his life, this man, these people, humanity would need to choose between what is good and what is evil because they have knowledge of both. But the only thing is because Adam and this is spoiler alert, by the way, because Adam would would eat that fruit as well as his wife Eve would eat uh, from this tree. Then they would have a sin nature and the sin nature will be passed down to all of us. And so throughout our lives on on this earth then guess what? We will have to fight against the urges to do evil. But praise God for for Jesus. Thank God for the Holy Spirit who, who helps us. If we walk in the spirit, the scriptures tell us we will not fulfill the lust of our flesh. But we do have this knowledge of good and evil. In Romans 5, 12. We see the consequence It says, therefore, just as through one man, sin entered the world and death through sin and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. And we'll get into that when we get to the fall of man. And so you'll see you see the spoiler alert here that I'm giving to you. He would sin and death would come upon humanity as well as animals and the earth would be cursed. And like I said, we'll get into that later. But as we see in the scriptures here in our lesson, the the Lord placed the first man in this garden of Eden. He placed him in paradise, this literal garden to work in this garden, to take care of this garden. But the work at this point was not toil. It was not something hard to do. It was it would be pleasant. Because some people think, oh, we only have to work because of the fall. But you see here that the man was put in this Garden of Eden to work before the fall. But it wasn't toil. It wasn't hard work. 
He wasn't sweating hard doing all of this. And so Adam, the first man, was placed in this garden. But I need to ask the question tonight. Which garden have you been placed in? Which garden has God placed you? Maybe he placed you in a garden of your marriage. Maybe he's placed you in that beautiful home that you're in and in that beautiful family that you have. Or maybe he placed you in your work environment. Maybe that's the garden that he has given to you that he placed you in. That community that you're in. Maybe that's your garden that God placed you in or the, the church that you're a part of, the local fellowship you're a part of, maybe that is the garden God has placed you in or that ministry God has told you to be a part of, that ministry God has called you to lead. Maybe that's your garden of Eden. Maybe that's the garden in which you have been placed. But whatever garden that you've been placed in, I, I would say do as God has told Adam to do. Tend to that garden and keep the garden in which God has placed you in. So in other words, when you tend to the garden, that means you are working in that garden. So if God has placed you in the, in the marriage garden, for example, then, then you work on that marriage. If God has placed you in your home, then you do the work that's needed to be done in that home. If God has placed you in a particular work environment, then, then you do the work God has called you to do in that work environment or in that community or in that church. You be a faithful worker. You tend to whatever garden God has placed you in. Tend to your garden. But not only that, but we are to keep the garden in which God has placed us. Another word for keep is Guard. We're to guard the garden. Now, at this time, Satan had not fallen. He had not rebelled. And so I like the explanation given by Henry Morris. He says, there is no thought involved of protecting it from external enemies of which there were none. But rather that of exercising a careful and loving stewardship over it, keeping it beautiful and orderly. With every component in place and in harmonious relationship with the whole. So in other words, if God has given something to you or placed you in a certain garden of life. Whether it's those various areas that I've mentioned to you earlier. That ministry that he's placed you in. That church he's placed you in. Then be careful to steward it well. Keep it beautiful. Keep it orderly. Keep everything running smoothly in your home if that's your garden. Keep everything running smoothly in your marriage. That's your garden. And those various relationships that God has placed into your lives. The responsibilities that God has given to you. Make sure that garden he placed you in. Make sure you do a good job of stewarding, stewarding over it. Being responsible. Making sure things run smoothly. And get this. This isn't anybody. 
as the worship team takes the stage. This isn't anybody, just anybody who, who's placed us in, in our life's gardens, wherever that may be, whatever that may be. But we're talking about the Lord God. We're talking about Yahweh Elohim, the, the creator of the heavens of the earth. We, we, we're talking about that he saw fit to place you somewhere. He saw fit to give you responsibility somewhere. He saw fit to put you somewhere to work for him in partnership with him. And so I would say this. Whatever garden God has placed you in to tend to it, to keep it or guard it. Don't see that as a burden. See it as a privilege. Because my God, the, my, the, the creator of the universe, the eternal one. He's the one who saw fit to put me into this position. And so when you get tired. You don't feel like getting out of bed. You don't feel like uh, driving to work. You don't feel like dealing uh, with your husband. You don't feel like dealing with your wife. You don't feel like dealing with your children. You don't feel like doing the work of the ministry for whatever reason. Remember that, hey, God, I, God, I remember you placed me in this, in this garden. I appreciate that. You could have put someone else here. You could have given someone else this opportunity, but you chose to place me in this garden. Lord, help me to be a faithful worker in this garden. Help me to keep it and to be a good steward of this garden. Will you pray that prayer? Will you have that attitude? And as I ask you that question, that's something that I intend to do for myself because the word it's for me as well as for you. The Bible says it's the scriptures, it's the word of God. It's a double-edged sword. It cuts both ways. So this message for every, is for every single person in this room or who's watching online. Amen? Amen. Let's pray as we get ready for uh, communion. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that You've placed us in these various gardens in this life. And I thank you for your Holy Spirit who empowers us to cultivate and to guard these gardens that you've placed us in, Lord. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you for the privilege. May you continue to strengthen us in our walk. Draw us closer to you. And Lord, we lift up the elements for communion. We lift up the bread. We lift up the juice. And Lord, we know that the bread represents the body of Christ that was beaten and abused for us. And we understand, Lord, that this cup of juice, that it represents the the blood of Christ, the very life of our Savior being poured out for us. But the scripture says that the life of the flesh is in the blood. So, Father, I pray that if any of us have sinned and we haven't confessed it, that you would bring it to our attention, that we'll confess, and you're faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, Lord, we say forgive us. 
And bless these elements, Lord. Bless these people. Even as we leave this place and not your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this teaching from God's Word. If you have any questions, would like to request prayer, or want more information about our church and how you can experience the love and hope of Jesus Christ in your life, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org.